You are listening to Seminars at Hadley. This seminar is The Birth and Eventual Death of Our Solar System, presented by Dr. Thomas Madura, moderated by Larry Muffet. Welcome to Seminars at Hadley. My name is Larry Muffet. I'm a member of Hadley's seminars team. I work in curricular affairs, and I'm the leader of Hadley's Veterans Initiative. Today's topic is the birth and eventual death of our solar system. Your presenter is Dr. Thomas Madura. Dr. Madura is an assistant professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at San Jose State University. Prior to San Jose State, Dr. Madura spent four years working as an astrophysicist in the Exoplanets and Stellar Astrophysics Laboratory at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He is a theoretical and computational astrophysicist whose research focuses on the late stages of the evolution of the most massive stars. Today, Dr. Madura will summarize our current understanding of how we think our solar system formed and what we think will happen to it and the universe altogether in the distant future. Now, let me welcome Dr. Madura and we'll get underway. Welcome, Doctor, and we look forward to your presentation on this fascinating topic. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for the uh, opportunity to present this material. I've also been looking forward to it. So I hope everyone finds it very interesting. I found it very interesting in the process of researching some of this material. So I'll just go ahead and dive right into it. So uh, my outline for today's talk, basically I want to do a little bit of a review just to remind everyone of where we are and what our solar system's main components are. Then I'll talk about our current theoretical understanding for the formation of our solar system. And then what we think will eventually happen to our solar system and the universe uh, a long, long time from now. So we don't have to worry too much about what's gonna happen uh, in the distant future, but it is, I think, very, very interesting to know and understand what's going to eventually happen. So first things first, uh, I would just like to summarize where exactly we are in the universe. So obviously I think most of us know that we live on the planet Earth and that the Earth is part of a solar system that consists of multiple different types of planets. Um, but what some people might not be aware of is that our sun, if we were to zoom out away from our solar system slightly, we would find out that we are part of what we call the interstellar neighborhood. So there are a number of other stars that surround uh, the sun various distances away. The closest is about four light years away. Um, and some of these stars actually also have their own planetary systems. But uh, the good thing to know is that we're not exactly alone in the universe. Um, and then if we were to zoom out even further, we would find out that uh, our sun orbits in the galaxy. And the galaxy obviously is a large flat disk-like structure. And it has uh, a couple of different what we call spiral arms. So our, our galaxy is what we call a spiral galaxy. And the solar interstellar neighborhood exists towards the outer edges of one of these arms. But again, if we were to zoom out even further, we would find out that our Milky Way galaxy is actually just part of a local galactic group of other galaxies. Uh, some of these you can um, detect in the night sky. So one of the more famous ones is the relatively nearby Andromeda galaxy, which is 
we think very similar to our own Milky Way spiral galaxy. And then in the southern hemisphere, there are a couple of other galaxies that we call the large and small Magellanic clouds. But all of these galaxies are, are interacting with each other. And then again, if we were to zoom out even further, we would find out that this local group of galaxies is part of an even larger group of galaxies that we call the Virgo supercluster. And then again, we can keep zooming out until we find that the Virgo supercluster is actually part of an even larger cluster of galaxies until we arrive at something we call large-scale structure of the universe, where we have strands of galaxies that all weave together. Um, and in between these galaxies, what's really, what's really interesting is in between these clusters of galaxies, we actually have um, large empty voids where pretty much nothing exists that we, that we know of, maybe one or two little galaxies that have gone, gotten thrown off due to various interactions. But uh, this large-scale structure in the universe we call the, uh, the cosmic web, the cosmic web of galaxies. <clears throat> so um, I wanted to set this background up because it'll be important for later when we talk about what's going to happen with, uh, with our solar system and with the eventual universe. So let's zoom back in and come back to our solar system. And uh, the first thing I would like to talk about really quickly is how old is our solar system? So in order to kind of understand the formation, we need to understand how old the solar system is. So we figure that the sun and the planets should all have about the same age. And the, one of the main ways that we actually determine the age of our solar system is through uh, radioactive dating. So what we do is we get samples of different rocks. Uh, some of these samples have actually been collected from the moon. And what we do is uh, we, pick a, so we pick specific elements. Usually I think it's potassium 20. And we measure the abundance of that radioactively decaying element in order to find the time since the rock actually ended up forming. So pretty much what happens is, is we uh, take this mineral sample. It will contain some radioactive atoms. These will decay into other types of atoms. And then the, the percentage of the radioactive, the original radioactive atoms to the new atoms in the mineral tells us um, what the age of, of the rock is. And so by dating rocks on the Earth and on the moon, and in meteorites, we find that the, uh, they all give ages of about 4.6 billion years. So our solar system is estimated to be about that old. So everything in it is estimated to be about 4.6 billion years old. So now just to give a quick review of the major components of our solar system, uh, the first thing that we need to talk about, which is probably one of the most important parts of our solar system is our local star, the sun. So the sun is incredibly important because all stellar systems, including our solar system, are defined by their stars. So everything in the solar system obviously orbits the sun. Um, everything depends on the type of star. So everything depends on the mass of the star, uh, what will happen in the solar system depends on the star's temperature. Uh, this will also, all of these things will also determine whether or not there's planet formation. 
uh, what kinds of planets will form and where, and even more importantly, the habitability zones. So where are the zones around the star where water can exist in liquid form and where life can possibly exist? So obviously the Earth exists in the habitability zone of our sun, and determining the habitability zone of other stellar systems is key for us trying to find other what we call exoplanets, so planets around other star systems, and trying to determine whether life might exist around these other planets. So again, the sun sits at the center of our solar system. It's most of the mass of our solar system. And then everything else orbits the sun. So the natural question to ask then is, so what is everything? So what else exists in our solar system? So the first thing that I think everyone is aware of are the planets. So we have going from the innermost parts of the solar system to the outer parts, we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all of the planets that we're all familiar with and, and learned at a young age. Now, it turns out that the planets basically come in several types. So in the interior of our solar system, closer to the sun, we have what we call the terrestrial or the rocky planets. And you can pretty much guess how they got their name. They're all made of uh, dense, rocky material. And on the inside of these planets, um, at the very center are metal cores that consist mostly of iron. Now, as we move farther out, we have what we call the gas and the ice giant planets. So these are the larger planets in our solar system, the biggest being uh, the famous Jupiter. And then we have Saturn with its famous ring system. Uranus, which is famous due to the fact that it actually, uh, it was, we'll discuss in a second, it orbits on its side. So it has a very unique orientation relative to all of the other planets in the solar system. And then we have Neptune. Um, and as we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later, Jupiter and Saturn are considered the, the gas giants, and then Uranus and Neptune are more what we consider ice giants. And again, all of each of these planets, uh, the gas and the ice giants, are significantly larger than uh, the Earth and the inner terrestrial planets. Next, we have something called uh, the Kuiper Belt. So it turns out once we go beyond the orbit of Neptune, we have this belt of debris of objects that surrounds the, the outer planets. And this is the location where um, our recently demoted Pluto and Charon exist. So Pluto and Charon uh, live in the Kuiper Belt of the solar system. And they're kind of different than the other planets in the sense that, well, one, their orbits are very different. Um, so most of the other planets happen to orbit around the sun more or less in the same in the same plane. Um, but the orbit of Pluto is actually tilted by quite a bit relative to where the other planets happen to be orbiting. Um, Pluto and Charon are also much, much smaller uh, than the other planets. Um, and the other important thing 
is that they're really not alone out in the Kuiper Belt, which is one of the reasons also why Pluto was uh, eventually demoted out of planetary status. So after several years, we've discovered that there are a number of other objects that are very similar to Pluto, some of our comparable in size, that also orbit around in the Kuiper Belt, and they all have these very elliptical or stretched or elongated orbits um, that are also tilted relative to the orbits of the uh, of the other planets in the in the solar system. Now, if we happen to zoom out even further away from the Kuiper Belt, uh, it turns out that we discover what we call the Oort cloud of comets. So. Whereas the, the solar system, the planets in the solar system and the Kuiper Belt all kind of exist um, almost in a, in a similar plane, like a disk, uh, the Oort cloud is more rounded or spherical, and it's more like a cloud that literally surrounds uh, the entire solar system. And the Oort cloud actually contains billions of comets and other debris that constitute what we think are the leftovers of the solar system, so the left of the solar system formation. So after the solar system formed, there was some debris that was left over, and this debris makes up the Oort cloud that surrounds us. Now, if we go back to the inside of the solar system, uh, another thing that we discover is in, in addition to the planets, uh, we have asteroids. So these are large rocks, pretty much that orbits um, in a, what we call the asteroid belt. And so the asteroid belt exists in between um, the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And uh, on the slide, for those that are, are able to view the, the slides, there is an image that shows an overlay of, um, of the solar system. So it's a top-down view looking down on the solar system. And at the center is marked the location of the sun. And then there are concentric rings around the sun that mark the orbits of the various planets. But then superimposed on this image are a lot of dots, a lot of little green dots, um, some red dots. But pretty much what, what is seen is that there is this whole continuous distribution of asteroids that, that make up the asteroid belt. So every individual colored dot pretty much that exists in this image is an asteroid in our solar system. And so we see that there are tons and tons and tons of asteroids that are orbiting. Um, some come closer and farther from Earth, but most of them, again, are concentrated in this uh, asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Next, um, I think what are impo what that's important to mention is the there are a number of satellites or moons that exist in our solar system. So Jupiter and Saturn have uh, some of the largest moons. Their moons actually are as big or in several cases bigger than the Earth's moon. And they're all very unique with uh, many different, uh, different types of structures and different compositions. So Jupiter has the famous Galilean moons that were discovered by Galileo. So these are Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Um, Saturn has a number of different moons, one of its most famous being the large uh, moon Titan, which has a very uh, thick, dense atmosphere. 
And then our moon, as, as I'll discuss a little bit later, is also very unique because uh, the Earth's moon is actually very, very large for a for the moon of an inner of an interterrestrial planet. Um, some of the other inner planets either don't have any moons, or in the case of Mars, they have very, very small moons. And then finally, um, the, one of the last components are the ring systems that exist around the, the, the gas giants and the ice giants. So around Jupiter, Uranus, Saturn, and Neptune are, are actually ring systems. Um, Saturn's is the most famous because it's the most easily detected. But uh, thanks to powerful telescopes and looking at different wavelengths of light, we can see that Jupiter, Uranus, and, uh, and Neptune also have their own ring systems, although they're not quite as spectacular as the rings that surround Saturn. So that's the overview of our solar system, just a quick review of the main components. Um, and we need to understand those components in order for us to understand exactly um, how our solar system forms, because any model that we come up with for the formation of our solar system needs to be able to explain all of the different unique pieces that we happen to observe. So we need to explain why everything orbits the sun the way that it does. Uh, we need to explain why the rocky planets are on the interior of the solar system, whereas the gas and ice giants are on the outer parts. We need to try and understand where did the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud come from? Where did the asteroids come from? Um, and why are the planets the sizes that they are? And why are they made up of what they are? So one of the things that I, that I also didn't mention much was, uh, you know, the, the, the outer gas giants are obviously made of gas, hence their name. They consist mostly of hydrogen and helium, whereas the inner planets are all uh, rocky material with very little gases. So we want to know and understand how and why did the planets uh, get that way. So um, again, this uh, just a quick summary of the main differences. So we can basically break up the planets into these two groups where we have, again, the terrestrial planets that are close to the sun. They're small, small masses, mostly rocky, solid surfaces, very high density, um, very few moons. They also don't have any rings, whereas the, uh, the, the giant planets, obviously, far from the sun, much larger, much higher mass, mostly gaseous, no real solid surface, much lower density. Um, they rotate much faster, and they have many moons and also many rings. So again, we want to understand why these differences. So a couple of clues um, can actually come from the orbits of the planets themselves. So one of the things to note is that all of the orbits, all of the planets orbit the sun in the same direction. Uh, the rotation axes of most planets in the sun are roughly aligned with the rotation axes of their orbits. But for some reason, um, Venus, Uranus, and Pluto, their spin axes are actually um, different than the other planets. So Venus actually happens to spin um, in the opposite direction of the other planets. Its rotation axis happens to go in the opposite direction, even though it orbits the sun in the same direction. And then uh, Uranus and Pluto also happen to uh, to be tilted. So I see that um, 
I had a question here saying that I have a few questions. Um, so yeah, I'd be happy to stop and take a few questions right now uh, before we continue if anyone has them. That's great. We do have some. Uh, first of all, let's uh, delve into you a little bit and how did you get interested in this and how did you get started in astrophysics? Uh, sure. Um, so I've actually, um, I'm one of those cases where I've always been interested in astrophysics ever since I was a kid. Um, it's one of those things where when I was about 12 or so years old, I, I went out and, and got a telescope and, uh, and started looking, just playing around in the backyard with, uh, with what I could actually see in the night sky. Now, I, I'm originally from the East Coast, and the light pollution on the East Coast is terrible, so I wasn't able to really see too, too much. Um, but I could see the, I could see the planets. I could, I could look at, I could look at Jupiter and its moons, and I could, I could occasionally look at the rings of, of Saturn. But um, I eventually just became more and more interested in, uh, in how everything just came to be, and then that curiosity just took over, and I just dedicated myself to, to wanting to become to become an astrophysicist. And then, and then I found out one day that you can actually get paid to do this for a living. And then I was like, okay, wow, fantastic. Let's, let's go for that. Do you have any favorite planet besides Earth, if, of course? Um, favorite planet? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would probably say Saturn with Jupiter as a close second. And Saturn mainly just because it's 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 so beautiful with its ring systems, and then also its its moon Titan is especially in recent years has become uh, interesting as a possible place to search for life in the solar system. And then um, and then again, Jupiter is also a, a spectacular planet with with all of its complicated motions of its atmosphere and all of its giant storms, its famous giant red spot. And then also its moons are, are very, very unique and possibly some of the best places in the solar system to, to hold life besides Earth. So, so I would say those two are, are closely matched. Great. Whenever you'd like to go ahead and start up again, be good. Sure, sure. And I'd be glad to take more questions um, as we proceed. So feel free to just let me know anytime anyone has any questions. Okay, so now that, that, that we've uh, talked about the, the, the solar system and some of its uh, properties, um, we're going to go through a, a quick history of how we think the solar system formed. So right now, on a very simple diagram that shows pretty much the basic steps, and I'll, I'll go through each of these in a bit more detail, but basically what happens is, is we start with a cloud of gas and dust, that will collapse due to gravity. Um, this will form a, a disk. This disk will separate into its different um, materials, some, uh, closer, some closer to the sun and some farther from the sun. The rocks and metals will be closer to the sun and then the gases will be farther out. Um, eventually, we'll start getting some little rocks that are colliding together due to gravity. Um, forming bigger and bigger things, and then eventually we'll start forming uh, the planets. And then some of the bigger planets will have their own uh, disks of material, and they'll start forming um, some of their larger moons. And then we'll have the remnants that help form other pieces of the solar system. So let's just go through some of these steps uh, really quickly. 
So um, the of a solar system like ours all starts with what we call the interstellar medium and molecular clouds. So, so what is this? So the interstellar medium is all of the material that exists between the stars. And spiral galaxies like our Milky Way, um, we have a very big fraction of our, of our, of our mass exists in the form uh, clouds, giant clouds of gas and dust that exist between the stars. Um, these clouds can be up to a million times the mass of our sun. Um, they're typically very dense and they're also extremely cold since they're in, uh, in interstellar space. Now what will happen is uh, usually in order to, to get a solar system to form, we need something to cause that, um, that gas and dust to start to collapse. And usually what does this we call a shock. So you don't need to really worry too much about the definition of what a shock is, but basically what we need is we need some sort of external trigger to get the whole process started so that we can form a star and then form planets. So some of the things that can trigger um, this formation of a solar system are supernovae. So like I said, the sun isn't exactly by itself. There are other nearby stars and these stars are of various masses. And when one of these stars, if they're really massive enough, explodes, it'll have a giant supernova explosion and the shock wave from this giant explosion can collide with the, uh, the molecular cloud and helps trigger um, new star formation and planet formation. Um, in addition to the explosion, um, it turns out we can have something called an ionization front from a nearby star. So an ionization front is, is it's just uh, the radiation from the stars will um, ionize or, or strip electrons off of gas that's nearby the star. And so the ionization front is just marks the boundary from where we go from having mostly neutral gas that isn't interacting with the radiation from the star to the area where we do have um, gas that has been stripped. So this ionization front can also um, help trigger star and planet formation. Um, sometimes if we have two giant molecular clouds that are near each other, they'll be attracted to each other by gravity and they'll start to collide with each other. This can also trigger star and planet formation. And then the motion of the galaxy itself, the spiral arms of the galaxies, the spiral arms of the galaxies are actually moving shock waves themselves. And so um, just the motion of the galaxy itself can help to trigger um, star and planet formation. So pretty much what happens is, is as once we have a trigger, um, different parts of the molecular cloud will start to collapse and cool. And uh, as they do this, um, as the collapse proceeds, um, the density will increase. As the density increases, um, the gas will start to emit radiation. And this will take energy away from the gas, causing it to cool more. And this will cause the cloud to collapse even further, which will cause it to emit more light. And so we get a, rat, a, a runaway process called a gravitational instability. And so once the process starts, it tends to be a runaway effect and the cloud just continues to collapse.
Um, now, the molecular cloud wasn't just sitting there perfectly motionless. Um, it always had some sort of motion uh, associated with it. And so as the molecular cloud starts to slowly collapse, um, it has to obey what we call uh, conservation of angular momentum. And basically what that means sim in simple terms is that as the cloud collapses, uh, it starts to spin up. To spin, um, what happens is, is the centrifugal support will cause the what was a, originally a round spherical cloud, as it starts to spin, it'll start to get flattened. And so it'll start to flatten out uh, into a disk as it, as it starts to collapse. Additionally, because of conservation of energy, uh, all of the energy that was that was in the cloud as it starts to spin has to go somewhere. And where it goes is into heat. So as the cloud starts to collapse, spin, it gets flattened, and then it also uh, starts to heat up. And then eventually it starts to spin faster and faster. Uh, the particles in the cloud get closer and closer until eventually they actually start to collide with one another. And this also helps to uh, flatten the, the, uh, the disk out even further because these collisions help to produce uh, up and down motion of material in the disk. Now, eventually, um, what will happen is, is they'll actually end up, once we have a disk, which is, it'll almost look like a record, or it'll, it'll be the this, this similar shape to a record. Um, what will happen is, is just like, um, it turns out that the whole disk doesn't rotate as one complete solid body. It's not completely solid like, like you would think a record would be, where the whole thing spins uniformly. And what will actually end up happening is stuff that orbits closer to the center will actually end up faster, and stuff uh, farther out will be slower, and you'll actually get a what we call a shear, so where the different parts that are moving at different speeds rub together. And this will actually help to transfer angular momentum. And what this pretty much does, the reason this is important, is it helps material to move more and more towards the center. So more material due to this process will go towards the center of the disk, and it'll also start getting hotter. And so basically what happens is, is this disk keeps rotating. Material gets moved towards the center. It gets hot. And eventually the mass and the temperature will be um, the highest at the center. And eventually what we'll get is we'll get the, uh, the initial seed for what will be the future star or sun of the solar system. And we call this central... Um, hot mass of the protostar. Now, the, the one thing I'd like to mention is, is so now one of the answers to our to our questions of why the solar system is the way that it is. So this disk that formed and with all of the material rotating in the same direction uh, as it orbits the central protostar, this helps to explain why all the planets that orbit our sun happen to orbit in the same direction and pretty much all orbit in the same plane. It all goes back to the original formation of the solar system and this, uh, this rotating disk. Eventually, um, this central object, the protostar, will keep um, accreting material, and eventually we'll get what's called a, a bipolar jet will form. So we'll get um, this disk of material with the protostar at the center, and then at, uh, at right angles to the disk, perpendicular to the disk, we'll have uh, a jet coming out from the top and the bottom. And this helps to 
um, get rid of some of the angular momentum of the accreted material. And uh, astronomers call these objects, these forming uh, early forming solar systems, we call them herbig hero objects. So now that we have our protostar, we can actually uh, keep going until we actually make our sun or make our star. So this protostar will shrink up. Um, it'll get hotter and hotter. Its surface will be about 4,000 Kelvin, um, whereas our, our sun's temperature is closer to 6,000. Um, the core of this protostar will reach uh, about 5 million Kelvin, but as, as hot as that is, um, it turns out that's still not hot enough for nuclear fusion, so we still don't officially have a real star yet, but it's starting to get there. Um, but the other thing that's really important is all of this activity where it, the, this, this star that's being born gets hot, um, we get a lot of violent surface activity, and so we get very strong protostar winds that blow away from the uh, from the central star and these winds help to clear away um, any remaining dust or gas that exists between the planets what we call it a debris disk that um, ends up now eventually once the core of the protostar reaches about 10 million kelvin um, we can start fusing hydrogen in the center and then our protostar will finally become a real star and then the star will just continue to contract until it's in equilibrium with gravity. And then once that happens, we say uh, that the star is a main sequence star, and it'll pretty much sit that way um, as long as the star has nuclear fuel that it can fuse. Once the star gets to the main sequence, um, something like the sun, it'll it'll sit there for for tens of for about tens of billions of years. So the debris disks that are left over, um, they're, the, they're the remnants that will um, allow planets to form. So first, we have to form what we call uh, planetesimals. So planetesimals are just really big rocks, about 100 kilometers wide, that will uh, collide and stick due to, due to gravity. But then what happens is, is as the disk material uh, cools and we start to form planetesimals, um, what will happen is, is the elements that are inside of this disk will start to separate. So um, when the solar system started to form, about 98% of the mass was hydrogen and helium, and about 2% was everything else formed in, in stars of earlier generations. And the, the, uh, the temperature will determine what kind of material condenses. So uh, close to the sun, we can't have water or, or any really complex hydrogen compounds. Um, and so they'll exist farther from the sun, whereas things like rocks and metals that uh, have what we call a high sublimation temperature, um, they, can they can exist close to the sun. And uh, so basically we'll have this boundary where we have uh, metals and rocks and other heavy stuff that uh, isn't very easily um, melted closer to the sun and then water and other gases like hydrogen and helium, they'll exist um, farther from the sun. And the boundary between the two will exist somewhere between the orbit of, uh, of Mars and Jupiter. So now what we want to do is we want to uh, form our planets. So the main way that we think this happens is by something we call the core accretion model. So pretty much what it is, is it's just um, collisions of smaller bodies, 
starting with uh, very small dust grains. Um, these dust grains will collide to form larger dust grains and eventually rocks and eventually planetesimals and then the cores of the planets and then um, they just keep colliding until the planets themselves form. Uh, the accretion model is um, this one model can explain the formation of uh, all the planets, um, including the gas giants. It, it can easily explain the moons, the formation of the comets, the asteroids, and everything. Um, it explains why the uh, planets are made up of what they are. Um, migration theory, so we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute, um, help to explain why also the planets exist where they do in their orbits. Um, and also, while the model takes uh, shows that it takes for the for the solar system to form, um, while that sounds slow, it's actually not as slow uh, as it sounds, and it's actually a pretty rapid process once it gets going. So, like I said, the first thing that happens within the disk is the small particles of dust will collide together. Um, they'll be blown into each other sometimes by that protostellar wind. Um, these will lead to our planetesimals, and gravity will start interacting with uh, these, these different planetesimals. Will start gravity. They'll start colliding together, forming bigger and bigger rocks. And then about a million years after this process has started, um, we'll have several hundred thousand planetesimals that are about 100 kilometers in size. And then what's important is once we start getting um, to about once we start getting to rocks that are about the size of the Earth, uh, we get something called gravitational focusing. This is um, gravity helps to focus and attract material to the larger um, to the larger planetesimals. And uh, if we're lucky, we'll even get a few planetesimals that will end up about ten times larger than the Sun, and they will undergo a runaway accretion of gas. And they will be the ones that become uh, the gas giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Um, also, once the planets are, once these planetesimals are big enough, they can actually start perturbing. And these giant Earth-sized um, planetesimals can actually start uh, colliding with each other. So we'll even have orbital rearrangements. So the planets will start shifting, moving in their locations, and they'll start colliding with each other. But the main point is, once a planetesimal gets big enough, uh, it'll undergo runaway accretion, and it'll start consuming everything um, that exists in the disk. So now, because we didn't have many gases available in the inner parts of the solar system, but we had lots of metals and rocks, um, the planets close to the sun will be small and rocky, which explains our terrestrial planets. But farther from the sun, where it's much colder, we have a lot of gas and ice, and so that's why um, the bigger planets like Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune were able to form uh, that much farther out and, and get so big is because one, they were far enough where it was cold enough to have all of those elements, and two, um, because most of the mass was in hydrogen and helium, a lot of hydrogen and helium available to form gigantic planets. So how did things form? So just a quick chronology. So we think Jupiter formed first, which makes sense because it's the, uh, it's the biggest planet. Um, so we think it formed in the first few million years of the early solar system. 
And then Saturn being uh, the second biggest formed uh, somewhere around uh, three and a half million years. Um, and both Jupiter and Saturn likely formed about 40 million years before nuclear reactions even started in the sun. So Jupiter and Saturn had formed before the sun was officially even a star. Uh, 50 to 70 million years after Jupiter and Saturn, uh, the sun enters what we call uh, the T-Tauri stage, um, where it's basically an early star. And then about 10 million years later, uh, Uranus and Neptune form early solar winds um, that's helping to, to, from the early sun, that helps to blow out um, the hydrogen and helium. Uh, the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, didn't have a lot of uh, didn't have a lot of free gas to uh, to accumulate, and so that's why they're mostly ice giants as opposed to gas giants. Now, the thing that's interesting about Uranus and Neptune is the time scale required for their formation. So, where Uranus and Neptune are currently located, about a hundred million years for them to form, but we know that it didn't take that long, and so that means that. Um, Uranus and Neptune probably actually formed much closer to the sun, and then um, later they migrated and moved outward to their, to their current orbits. And we have detailed models now that show that this was most likely, uh, most likely the case. Uh, later, the terrestrial planets formed about 10 million years after the sun's early T-Tauri phase. Um, and then these planetesimals collided uh, frequently for a few hundred million years. Um, and then these bodies just happened to continue to, uh, to gravitationally interact, which took less than maybe about 100 million years. And when they did this, they, um, they, would, re re uh, they would interact in various ways. Sometimes they would collide with each other. But slowly over this uh, 100 million year time scale, um, they came to form the current planets that we happen to know today. Now, everything that was left over um, formed the asteroids and the comets in the Kuiper belt. So the asteroids are just the leftover remnants of the inner solar system. Um, and we think that Jupiter's str very strong gravity, because it's so big, um, prevented these, uh, these asteroids from coalescing and forming another. And then the comets. Um, are just the icy leftovers of planetesimals um, in, the, in the outer portions of the solar system. So next, we would like to understand a little bit of where did the moons come from. So there are two basic ways to get the moons. Um, one way is to have a gigantic impact between two planetesimals. So we think, for instance, that our unique moon was probably formed by a gigantic impact between the Earth and another large that was probably about the size of Mars. And so these we have these two giant we have these two giant bodies collide and the material got thrown off, but it was stuck in orbit around us and then eventually coalesced and formed the moon. And then the other type of uh, type of way to get moons is uh, via capture. So basically the gravity of the planetesimal happens to capture uh, something, another body nearby, and then that body becomes the moon. So a couple of examples, um, the moons of Mars captured asteroids, and then Triton um, 
we think might also be a captured moon since it orbits in a direction uh, that's the direct opposite of the direction of Neptune's rotation. And then finally, to explain the rings, um, sometimes if you get too close to a planet, if a planetesimal or a moon or something gets below what we call the Roche limit, um, what will happen is, is the moon will actually be, uh, or the body will actually be ripped up by gravity, by tidal forces. And then the debris that's left over will stay in orbit around the, uh, around the planet and create a, a ring system. And so we think that that's what happens um, also with the other gas giant and ice giant planets, is that there were some moons who dropped below this limit and they just got ripped apart by gravity and formed the rings. Okay, so that basically sums up um, the formation of the solar system. So I guess this might be a good time to stop if there are any, any quick questions before I, with the, with the ending of the talk. So are, are there any questions at this point? Uh, do the planets ever orbit closer to each other or do they always stay the same distance away? Uh, that's a great question. Um, we think that right now, for the most part, they, they stay pretty much in the, same, in the same spot. But when the solar system was first forming, um, they actually did move around quite a bit. So, uh, like I said, we think uh, Uranus and Neptune formed closer to the sun, and then eventually they moved outward. And, but eventually with time, they eventually, uh, their orbits eventually stabilize, unless something else happens to come in and disturb them. So, for instance, uh, it's very rare, but it can happen, is if, uh, remember I said that we have a stellar neighborhood of other stars nearby, if another star were to pass really, really close to our solar system, um, that could actually perturb the orbits and cause the, the, uh, the orbits of the planets to change, or even some of the planets to be thrown out depending on the exact interaction. So it can happen, but it, it's right now for us, luckily, we're, we're pretty safe. Is there anything that we know about the planets now that we couldn't say 50 years ago, or is there anything that's different, our knowledge of them that's way different than what we thought it was? Um, I would say yes. So one of, um, I would say some of our understanding about how, how and why the planets are where they are, a lot of that we didn't really appreciate until we started seeing uh, planets around other stars. Like, for instance, um, we always thought that it was impossible for things like Jupiter to form really close to, to the sun. Um, the main thing we didn't understand is the, of the planets around in their orbits. That, that's something that's relatively recent. Um, also, the, uh, the knowledge we've obtained about the moons of, of the various planets has, has increased greatly uh, to the point where, like I mentioned earlier, we think that some of the moons, especially the moons of, of Jupiter, like Europa, um, could sustain, could possibly sustain life. So Europa, if, if you have the time, I highly suggest reading up, reading up on Europa because Europa, we think, has a, uh, has a giant saltwater ocean under a layer of ice that's miles and miles and miles thick. But at the bottom of this ocean, we think that the gravitational tides due to interactions with Jupiter, they kind of stretch and squish the, the moon as it orbits around Jupiter. And this can give rise to uh, what we call geothermal activity at the bottom of the ocean. And we actually see similar activity on Earth, although it's, it's created by different means, but uh, there could be life living 
these uh, these geothermal vents. So um, yeah, it's it's just in such such increased understanding um, thanks to all the different probes and stuff that we that we have sent out. Fascinated. Now let's start with the end of the solar system. Sure. Okay. So the end of the solar system. Um, so basically, we'll talk a little bit about what will happen to Earth. So as the sun, uh, since its birth, the sun, as it's been burning through its fuel, its brightness has gradually increased. Now, ever since its birth, about four and a half billion years ago, its brightness has only increased by about 30%. But in about another billion years, the sun's luminosity will about double. And when this happens, the surface temperature of the Earth is going to rise significantly. So in about one billion years, the surface temperature of the Earth will be about uh, 1,600 degrees centigrade, so much, much greater than the boiling point of water. And unfortunately, uh, what this will do is in about a billion years, uh, it'll be so hot that all of the water on Earth, all of the Earth's oceans, everything, away into space, um, pretty much ending all life on Earth. Now, unfortunately, it gets worse because uh, in about five billion years from now, the sun will start to will start to die, and it will become what we call a red giant as it depletes the hydrogen fuel in its core. But when the sun becomes a red giant, it'll actually expand to be about 100 times bigger than what it is now, and the sun will actually get the radius of the sun will actually be larger than the orbit of, of Venus. Now, what we don't know, and there's been a lot of modeling about this to, to try and figure it out, but when this happens, the Earth may or may not end up being swallowed by the sun. Um, the reason it's uncertain is because during this process, uh, the sun mass, and this may cause the orbit of the Earth to change slightly and the orbit of the earth may be just big enough where the where the earth doesn't get completely eaten by the sun but there are some models that predict that mercury venus and earth will all be consumed uh, by the sun uh, when the sun uh, starts to starts to die and go through its uh, red giant phase uh, eventually the sun will use up all of the helium in its core um, and it won't be able to uh, fuse uh, once it gets once it makes able to fuse carbon because the sun actually just isn't big enough. And what will happen is, is the sun will actually swell even more and it will blow off its outer layers in the space and form what we call a planetary nebula. Um, and then the hot core of the sun that's left over will sit in the center of this nebula and the, uh, the hot leftover core we call a white dwarf. And then that white dwarf is just like a hot ember. They're slowly cooling over the next quadrillion years, so about 10 to the 15 years, until it becomes what we call a, a black dwarf. Now, what's interesting is before even all of this can happen, it turns out that the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy we live in, if you remember, I said that there are other nearby galaxies, one of them being the Andromeda galaxy. Well, it turns out in about four to five and a half billion years from now, right about the time the sun will, will start to die, our galaxy will actually collide with the Andromeda galaxy, and the two will form one gigantic super galaxy. 
But uh, the good news is, is that um, even though this will happen, the solar system um, will actually probably survive uh, this merger. So in about, uh, so now we talk more about the end of the universe. So in about 10 to 11 to 10 to the 12 years, it turns out that all of the galaxies in our local group, not just the Milky Way and Andromeda, will all merge together into one gigantic galaxy. And then eventually, if the universe keeps expanding, um, remember there was the Big Bang that formed the universe and the universe is, is, is expanding. Um, and we think that expansion is accelerating. Um, in about 150 billion years, um, all of the other galaxies that um, exist beyond us will just expand and just move farther and farther away from us until in about two trillion we can't even detect uh, other galaxies. We, we won't even know that there are other galaxies that exist besides our, our gigantic galaxy that formed from, from all of the mergers. Um, in 100 trillion years, um, all star formation will stop. And most of what will be left over in the universe will be um, the dead remnants of other stars, neutron stars, black holes, and then we'll have other really small objects called ground dwarfs, and then they'll, they'll also be just whatever planets happen to remain. And then eventually the universe will get very dark, but uh, because there's no new stars, but occasionally, due to gravity, some of these leftover white dwarfs could collide and merge together, and uh, they could create what we call stars. And then in about 10 to the 15 years, um, the orbits of the planets will start to decay due to uh, what we call gravitational radiation, or due to interactions with other nearby stars, uh, the planets may get ejected from their, from their stars, from their suns. Then after about 10 to the 20 years, um, we'll get what we call dynamical relaxation. So this is just another due to gravity. And this will actually cause most objects, um, including stars and planets and brown dwarfs, to, to all be thrown from their host galaxies. And then the rest of the matter will just fall into the, uh, into the black holes that happen to exist at the centers of galaxies. Now, once all this happens, uh, we won't know. Um, it's a little speculative because once we start getting to much longer timescales on the order of uh, 10 to 35 years, um, protons that make up the atoms inside of us may actually and uh, we don't know exactly if or when this will happen but if it does basically what will happen is, is all matter will actually decay into uh, into radiation and then other smaller particles like electrons and uh, and neutrinos but what's interesting is after about that point um, black holes will actually start to dominate the universe but even the black holes don't live forever. And uh, I'm sure we've all heard of the famous uh, astrophysicist Stephen Hawking's idea that after a long enough amount of time, even black holes will evaporate. And uh, this takes an extremely long time. But when it, when it does happen, um, basically uh, all of the matter that had been sucked into the black hole will actually become um, hot and visible again. And so even though the universe was very, very dark and looked dead because of uh, there was no more new star formation, once the black holes start to um, they'll provide a temporary source of light uh, to relight the universe. But eventually, all of the black holes will evaporate in about 10 to 100 years. 
and the universe will be um, pretty much uh, very big and very empty with just photons, dark matter, electrons, and positrons. And then after that, um, in about 10 to the 2500 years, uh, no one knows what really will happen. Um, there could be something that's caused, called the Big Rip, kind of uh, the opposite of the Big Bang. So what happens is, is the universe just keeps expanding and accelerating. Uh, and it keeps accelerating so fast to the point where um, the universe actually literally rips itself apart. It actually rips space-time apart. Or we can get something called the big freeze, which is uh, the uh, state of maximum entropy of the universe, which we, which sometimes is known as the heat death of the universe, about 10 to the 1,000 years. But it's not all um, doom and gloom um, because, it, like again, it, this is very speculative. But it turns out that um, if the universe just keeps existing for significant amounts of time, it turns out that after a very, very, very long time, um, 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 56 years, um, it's actually statistically possible due to quantum mechanical effects for another big bang to occur. And so it, that on long enough timescales, um, the universe just has another big bang and the whole cycle just starts over and it just continues forever. Okay, so that's pretty much the end of my talk. Um, and again, I'd be glad to take any remaining questions that, that anyone happens to have. And thank you again for this, for this opportunity for me to, uh, to share this knowledge with all of you. Certainly, thank you. This is, uh, some of this stuff is positively mind blowing. Um, yes, yes, it is. It's very, very interesting. It, it really, truly is. I've got a question for you here. Are there any planets yet to be found? Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, so there is some speculation that there may be another planet um, in, in our solar system farther out. Uh, I think it's called Planet X. But there are some people who um, have hypothesized that there is this other this other planet that exists uh, farther out in the outer reaches of our solar system, and there are efforts to to try and to try and actually detect it. Um, earlier, there used to be uh, there used to be it used to be thought that there was another planet in the inner solar system, um, and it was named they they named this hypothetical planet Vulcan after you know um, Spock's home planet in Star Trek, but it turns out that that Vulcan does not exist. Um, but there could be this planet X that, that may exist in the outer parts of the solar system. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see if anyone happens, happens to actually find it. Here's a real scientific question for you. What do you think is the coolest thing about the solar system? Now, I guess, do they mean coolest as in temperature or coolest as in most fascinating? Most fascinating. Um, most fascinating. I, I figured as much. Um, most fascinating. Um, I would say the fact that uh, the fact that we can exist and even and even and even study it, um, I would say that's probably the most mind blowing part. Um, is that every we happen to exist in a in a place where everything is is perfect, so that uh, so that we can exist and so that we can actually study it. Um, to have life evolve and then to have it evolve into intelligent life capable of questioning its own existence. Um, that I think is, is amazing given the fact that we haven't found anything else like that anywhere else in the, in the universe.
Um, not even any, not even any hints of that yet. Um, so it's very, very amazing and also very humbling at the same time. I, I think so. I, I would say that's probably the. So maybe it's a little bit egotistical, but I would say that uh, that we're the coolest thing um, in the solar system. As far as this um, description of how everything is going to end someday, is this something we've observed in other solar systems, or is just, or it is all just a um, a scientific model? Um, so it's it's a little bit of each. Uh, so the stuff about the red giant phase um, that that's that's been observed. Um, it's a little hard to actually see planets getting consumed, but we have seen some some effects of things like atmospheres being blown off of, of off of planets and that type of thing. Um, so we we have we have observed some of these effects, um, but but since it's stuff that's going to happen in the future, the details are always are always a little bit speculative um, because there are, there are always unknown what we call unknown unknowns. So things that could happen between now and then that could that could disrupt the sequence, um, but but for the most part it's it's pretty theoretically pretty theoretically sound. Like for instance the the sun heating up and uh, and boiling away the Earth's oceans that's that's inevitable. That's something that that will happen. Um, the Earth the, the sun swelling up to a red giant that will happen. It will consume Earth. Um, like I said we don't know for sure if it'll consume Mars uh, Earth because Earth is like right on that boundary of whether whether it will be consumed, um, and then colliding with Andromeda, that that's going to happen. That's that's unavoidable. We can we know that just from observations. Um, and then, but some of the more speculative things, like you know whether protons decay and, and what's going to happen after that, that that's mostly just based on based on theory. Well, I want to thank you for this. This is. Uh something I've really just uh, enjoyed immensely. And I want to know, let everyone know that if today's webinar has you interested in this or related space science topics, please check out our Earth and Space Science course and, of course, the webinar archives. In addition, if you haven't listened to the first two in the NASA series, don't delay, register, and listen right away. You will not regret it. Dr. Madura and I both thank you for your participation. As always, Hadley values your feedback. Please let us know what you thought about today's webinar, and please give us suggestions for future topics. You can do that by dropping us an email to feedback at hadley.edu, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, the at sign, H-E-D-L-E-Y dot E-D-U. And I'm going to turn the microphone back over to Dr. Medora one last time if you'd like to make any closing comments. Uh, no, I think I've said pretty much everything I'd like to say. It's just, uh, again, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was, it was very very fun to, to research this topic and even more fun to share it with everyone. So I, I do hope that everyone enjoyed it. Uh, I hope I did. I hope I did, uh, did it justice and, uh, and that it was easy enough to follow. But again, please uh, send any comments or suggestions you have, I guess, improve these talks in, in the future. So thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. And for all of you listeners, again, thank you. And until we speak again, goodbye for now.